Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in American Politics, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am with Adam Silver, Associate Professor of Political Science at Emanuel College, to talk about his new book, Partisanship and Polarization, American Party Platforms, 1840 to 1896. This volume explores the development of political parties in 19th century United States of America, through an extensive analysis of the official statements by a party in an election, the party platforms, and their connection with political elites and voters. Platforms indicate how party leaders reconciled local, state, and national conflicts and articulated their electoral appeals to various constituencies through a presentation of their perspective and respective policies. Thus, party platforms are a valuable vehicle to assess electoral strategy and party development, This examination of 19th century American party platform traces political party development as a a dynamic process involving partisanship, the presentation of internally coherent and consistent messages to voters, and polarization, the existence of conflicting policy positions across parties. This book is published by Lexington Books 2022. Adam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. Well, before we get into the content of the book, can you tell us a little bit about your academic background and the scholarly impetus for writing Partisanship and Polarization? Sure. Um, Yeah. And and thank you again for inviting me uh, to be part of this uh, conversation. Um, My background uh, academically, um, you know, comes from also a political background. Um, Prior to going, uh, pursuing my doctorate, I worked in uh, state politics back in New York. And um, by doing that, you know, I, I worked for uh, state senate there, doing policy work, and well, on the, as well on the campaign side. And doing that really provided um, the empirical foundations for a lot of the theories I would end up studying later. So I kind of went at it, uh, from that perspective first, and then um, in pursuing my doctorate, I, I attended uh, Boston University um, and. I was always interested in um, history as well as politics. So in talking with my advisor uh, at the time, uh, John Gehring, who, who uh, also authored a really famous book um, on political ideologies, um, which really uh, provided uh, some framework and uh, foundation for, for my work, um, this really provided an avenue to combine aspects of political science as well as history in that way, and specifically looking at the 19th century. And so um, when thinking about where I wanted to pursue my dissertation and what that work came out of, this pursuit of looking at party platforms early on in our conversations, he directed me not only to his work, but other works, the likes of Richard Benzel, um, Michael Holt, at the time, uh, Joel Silby, and looking at some of these authors and what they've done really uh, helped me pursue the work that I wanted to do. So this book 
uh, is, and we'll talk, I think, a little bit more about the data collection and the methodology associated with it. But this book is really the culmination of of uh, my work uh, in graduate school and the doctoral dissertation there. And 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 we can talk about obviously, I think, towards the end about where we're going to go with it further. But um, that's really the background from that. And, Fantastic. And- yeah. yeah. Sorry, I don't know if you want me else to talk about where at Emmanuel and where I'm at now, but if if, if that's uh, if that's where you wanted to. Go. No, you're great. Thank you. I I, uh, I I noticed that you reference historians like Holt frequently, and I thought this was a wonderful kind of political science compendium to their more larger historical focused research. So, give us a sense of your book scope. You mentioned this is 19th century. Why focus on the years 1840 to 1896? What's significant about this uh, historical range in American politics? Yeah, thank you. Um, we could talk those specific years in the book ending of 1840 1896 speaks to the development of the party systems in the United States. Um, as you know from your own reading and scholars point to the uh, the 19th century, especially starting in the 1830s and culminating in the 1890s as this party period in American politics, right? Uh, Richard McCormick talks about that. Uh, Joel Silby talks about it in relation to the American political nation um, in this regard. But the reason being is because we really see the development of grassroots political parties um, starting in the 1830s with the Democratic Party of Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, um, the, the response to that, the development of the Whig Party, which grew out of um, opposition to Jackson and then coming up with their uh, thinking about an ideological framework as a result of that. And we really see the organizational mechanisms by which these parties uh, developed over time throughout the 19th century. And, um, you know, we have the first first party period is, you know, I think people tend to look at it in relation to the Federalists, uh, really the Federalists and the Jeffersonians, which as, as historians and other scholars have argued uh, really wasn't um, they weren't really parties as we know them today, more like factions in that sense. But um, with Andrew Jackson, the development of the Democratic Party, um, the late 19, late 1820s, and early 1830s we see this growth of the mass-based political party. Um, and that's where we you know, really see the birth of these, these organizations. And throughout the 19th century, obviously, the Civil War uh, disrupted the party system from that perspective. So the 1830s, 40s, and 50s was intense competition between the Democrats and the Whig Party. The Whig Party tended to t- die out in the mid-1850s, um, where we see the ascendance uh, of the uh, Republican Party, which is the most successful third party in American history. And then after the Civil War, the parties returned to this period of intense competition um, between the Democrats and Republicans. And 18, the 1890s is kind of viewed as this way to, uh, they talk about the system of 1896, and there's dispute among scholars about, um, is that a, a, an endpoint and and starting a new point in, in, in party trajectory, or if it's a continuation of trends that we see. Um, but I just felt that 1896 election being such a pivotal, pivotal election around the standards debate, the monetary standards debate, um, and 
really seeing the ascendance of, of uh, the Republican Party at that point and the codification of certain of um, voter alignments as a, and the last presidential election of the 19th century are really uh, a good way to end the framework. So 1840 begins. That's the first, um, you know, Whigs uh, contested the 1836 election. Um, but 1840 is, you know, where they really coalesced around one candidate. And obviously we know that William Henry Harrison uh, won that election. So it was a good way to start the, uh, the, the framework of the study. And then 1896, as I mentioned, a good way to end it being the last presidential election of the uh, 19th century. Fantastic. So the, the, the data that you utilize in this party period is party platforms. Explain exactly what those are, party platforms, and what purpose did they serve to, as you explicitly mentioned, party elites, those in control of political parties that were developing in this time? Yeah, I'm, I'm very much of a subscriber to the parties as coalitions uh, uh, framework. And um, party elites, as we know, and we can see this happening in our politics today, right? Political leaders, they attempt to craft winning electoral coalitions, right? And what does that look like? How, who, you know, how do they amass the, the requisite number of voters from different interests in order to win an election, whether it be a presidential election, a Senate election, a gubernatorial election, whatever that might be. Um, and so in the 19th century, parties served as this key identifier to people. Now, today we can talk about how, you know, and we'll see, you know, we talk about party polarization today, and maybe that's where we get into some of this discussion of why I titled the book Polarization and Partisanship in that way. Um but where voter ID today and party ID still exercises a great deal of influence about the voting calculus uh, by 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 citizens. Um, but um, the point is that um, in the 19th century, parties even more so um, they really represented a brand they represented an identity for a lot of voters and, and again we could talk about that today if we get to that point about identities and parties and parties in, in our current political environment but the party platform itself is an articulation of the policies and positions and even the legacies of a um party in a given election they are the official statement of that party. And they, hence, as a result, for me and some scholars with whom I mentioned earlier and who I owe a, a debt to in the formation of this work, they can help provide a window into the strategy of political leaders and party leaders in a, given, in a specific election as well as over time. And so... That's why I really wanted to look at these documents, um, these specific documents. Um, in the 19th century, party leaders met in convention. They would do so at the local level, like congressional or county, county level in some instances. Uh, they would do so at the state level and then uh, at the national level. And so state parties, in trying to organize and develop their own identities and get their own uh, voter support within their states, 
would meet in state convention and oftentimes craft their own platform that stipulates the policies on which they want to run or even talk about the legacy of that party. So it's not always substantive in relation to where they stand on a specific policy of the day, whether it be the tariff or issues relating to immigration, but more talking about where that party is and, you know, the legacy, the party of Jefferson, the party of Lincoln, whatever they have, they want to refer to it. Um, and, the, and the constitutional ideals. And then, you know, at the national level, they would also meet and craft this um, national platform. John Reynolds, um, in his work, referred to this as the search for harmony within uh, political parties, because the platform represents this document that theoretically brings together the various elements or um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? constituencies within each party. And so hopefully from the party leader's perspective, they could craft a document that appeals to the various segments of their, their party to uh, present to the electorate. These platforms were at times printed in newspapers of the day. They would be printed in almanacs of the day. Um, and so um, there was a way for uh, party leaders from the national to the state level to really articulate the, um, the positions of the party in, in that election. Your book's title is Partisanship and Polarization. We talked about the subtitle, we'll move to the, the primary one. How, how do you define these terms in relationship to this focus on party platforms? Yeah. Um, so polarization, obviously we refer to polarization a lot today. Um, but where to what extent we're in this really polarized time and polarization could speak to a scale, right? So if you have a liberal conservative scale that one person is all the way in the liberal perspective, another person is all the way in the conservative perspective, and it could be measured in votes in Congress in some capacity as, as the famous DW nominate scale has done with Poole and Rosenthal, where they, where they crunch numbers relating to votes in Congress to depict polarization. We can look at it amongst voters on, on issues, maybe on reproductive rights or gun control or whatever that might be. And so, but Francis Lee and other scholars tend to think about it, that it might not, that there's that spatial assessment of it, but it's not always that easy, right? There's, there, um, and Richard Mendel, you know, people talk about the idea that it's difficult to, to reduce a political action to a, a numerical, um, value. So I try to, I take the term polarization and I try, I, I, and when I look at the party platforms themselves, I say, okay, where, and we can get into some more of the detail of how I code some of these things, if you'd like going forward on, you know, how, how in the weeds we want to get, but basically I take a position, let's say a tariff, right? The protective tariff. Um, we know that, the Whig Party and the Republican Party throughout the bulk of the 19th century supported a higher tariff on imported goods, a protective tariff to protect uh, domestic industry. Whereas the Democratic Party wanted a lower tariff um, to make their goods, which were more ag agricultural, um, uh, competitive on the international market. So if we take that, we could see, okay, where's the Whig Party or the Republican Party in a specific election on the tariff and how they articulate their position versus that of 
the Democratic Party. And so polarization to me is deemed or I assess it in degree of conflict, right? You know, do they adopt a strong position in favor of the, of the tariff? They adopt a strong position in opposition to the tariff. And how does that look? Um, obviously, the language and we get into the, the discussion of the content of the platforms themselves and the language, there could be more subtleties and nuances um, from which we can discuss uh, that, that have to be unpacked. Um, but that's how I kind of look at polarization. To what extent do the parties embrace or articulate conflict, conflicting positions on an issue? Partisanship speaks to the degree to which a party is internally coherent on an issue. To what extent is there agreement? So if we take, again, if we take that example of the tariff, to what extent are all the Republican parties, the national party, the party in the, the national platform, the party at the state level and their platforms adopting and articulating the same position? Um, or do we see one affiliate, let's say the Virginia Republicans versus the New York Republicans adopting uh, conflicting or slightly different uh, uh, positions or framing the position slightly differently uh, on that? So polarization is inter-party, partisanship is intra-party within the party. And that's how I kind of look at these uh, two concepts within, within this work. So next I'll bring up, you know, two kind of parts on questions of methodology, right? We've established exact, you know, time frame, definitional concepts. Uh, now it's, okay, how many, and, and I found this, this to be extremely impressive, both the, the number and then the inclusion of how many platforms did you look at? what kind of platforms? Uh, and then amongst those platforms, what are the planks that you examine, right? Because you, you list in your text and have a chapter for seven planks. So just, just elaborate on, you know, the, the, the amount of platforms and, and what you're specifically looking for in each platform. Sure. So um, there are 475 uh, platforms in total in the data set. Um, so that means and each platform constitutes a case in the sense that I look at the platform and I code it for a specific material, which I'll get into in a second. There are 475 platforms, uh, from different, um, from different, uh, uh, from the national level and then different states. Um, so in looking at that, we have, um, you have California, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, Missouri, Nebraska, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Virginia. And now with those states, I tried to get the state selection was done according to certain criteria. One was try to get regional variation as best as possible. Um, and we can talk about, it, and I think, you know, is some you know got to be careful about drawing too many conclusions based on region from that because it you know the the n small you know a smaller data set in regards to the number of states involved, um, but also the degree of party development um, in some of these states, as well as what's available. Um, the, the parties in the United States are are notoriously uh, apolitical in certain uh, a historical in certain sense in certain senses that they don't have the for example the New York. Democrats or New York Republicans don't have all their platforms going back. 
Um, so the data collection process, you know, could be easier in some states than others. So, for example, California, uh, you know, uh, some kind soul was, was collected all those platforms years ago and put them out in one volume. Um, Missouri had these registers that they were available. Nebraska, um, similarly. New York, you know, had a document of uh, an undated document of uh, Republican platforms um, from the 19th century. But for the most part, though, um, you know, I, have, I would consult um, almanacs of the time period, Appleton's Almanac, the Tribune Almanac, McPherson's um, that came out annually. And you could see the platforms in these. And at times I'd also, for the most part, consult uh, newspapers of the time period, whether it be regional ones or uh, more national ones that as we see the development of the 19th century. So these platforms are collected and then and then reviewed uh, based on the analysis. Uh, each platform is coded based on its party. So the Democratic Party versus say, the Whig Party or the Republican Party. There'd also be third party or factional offshoots of each of these major parties, such as, you know, um, let's say uh, the Gold Democrats of the time period especially in the 1890s, or third parties like the Populist Party or the American uh, Know-Nothing Party, which, you know, in, in the 1850s, in some instances, the Know-Nothing Party was not really a third party, but exerted a great deal of, of um, uh, influence on the uh, political scene. And then uh, in looking at the platforms themselves, I coded the language and the content um, for issues, and I grouped these issues in larger domains. So that's kind of what I think you're alluding to in these seven major domains. And these domains, again, were influenced by uh, previous scholars for the degree of continuity in the field, as well as uh, trying to situate uh, a degree of consistency. They were revised to slightly adapted to what I was looking at. But one domain would be, let's say, the economics which would focus on, as you can imagine, economic issues, fiscal policy, monetary policy. Um, I have a fee, I have a domain on um, what I refer to as statism, which looks more at ideological concerns in relation to how the parties viewed the role of the national government. So the Whig Party and the Republican Party, for example, um, embraced a more uh, positive role of the government, not negative. And I don't mean positive or negative in regards to values, right? I mean positive or negative in regards to presence or 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 and lack thereof. So positive government would be um, being more engaged, using uh, national resources to develop infrastructure, internal improvements, public education. At the same time, this field, uh, this domain also looked at the tension between states' rights and that of the national government. So the Democratic Party tended to embrace or use rhetoric that embraced more uh, states' rights policy, limited government, limited national government. Uh, another uh, domain looked at were referred to as government and political institutions. And this domain included policies relating to electoral reform, such as uh, the secret ballot, the adoption of the secret or Australian ballot. It looked at issues relating to uh, term limits for presidents. Um, executive power, subordination of the military to the civilian authority, judiciary. Um, 
the fourth uh, fourth domain is black enslavement and civil rights, which focused obviously on issues relating to black enslavement uh, prior to the Civil War, and then looking at civil rights for uh, people of color um, post Civil War. And that could be, you know, whether it be uh, federal supervision of uh, elections in the South, to uh, to discussion of equal rights in that capacity. Another domain is where I refer to as culture. And culture embraced um, or includes, excuse me, uh, policies relating to policies and rhetoric relating to or referred to as ethnocultural or ethno-religious foundations. So this looked at the ethnicity and the religious identities um, and uh, of voters. Because there's a debate, you know, throughout American political history in relation to uh, voter alignments and what motivates voters to align behind a specific party. Um, and the ethnocultural school uh, speaks to this idea. Um, and so in this, we would see uh, policies relating to immigration. We might see language and rhetoric on relation to nativism, um, which, uh, which in some instances is opposed, obviously, immigration, especially of, of Catholic immigrants at the time. We can look in this uh, relation to um, religion and religious freedom. And obviously tied into the nativism and the religious freedom was this debate between, uh, as I said, Catholicism and how uh, Whig um, and conservative uh, party leaders at the time uh, express fear of a papal conspiracy to take over the United States and push back on uh, or were concerned about Catholic immigrants. This is in the 1850s and carried forward into actually into, I think it was pretty, if I recall correctly, uh, factored into the 1876 election as well. Um, um, and so it also, this, this domain also um, looked at issues relating to American political culture more broadly, our constitutional foundations, liberty, freedom, and, and the like. Another, another domain looked at foreign policy, which could be anything relating to the war with Mexico, to, uh, you know, early stages of discussion of the canal in uh, Nicaragua, um, as well as statehood within, and territorial expansion in the United States. I included it in there because obviously some areas are not necessarily in the United States yet, um, but um, so... Um, it could also be talking about expressing uh, support for people uh, overseas who are, are vying for their freedom. And then lastly, I have a plank, I'm uh, sorry, domain category on labor issues. And this could be anything relating to child labor laws, to convict labor. And so those seven domains, economics, statism, government, political institutions, black enslavement, civil rights, culture, foreign policy, and labor are the seven domains by which I categorized the platform language and content. Um, and I looked at the various issues or, you know, there are various issues, specific issues within each of these um, that I categorized the language. And so by doing that, you know, I developed a data set that looked at, you know, these various issues and where the parties came down to try to assess um, and map, if you will, 
what issues and domains more broadly were prominent in certain uh, certain time periods to see really what the parties were saying officially to each other, right? With these with these platforms. So implicit in your listing of the domains relates to two analytical concepts you employ, salience and position. How do those concepts factor into the ordering of the domains? Yes. Um, oh, and also, I, I do want to mention before I begin, the, the, um, I organized the data, as you know, in the, in, the, in the book based on three different time periods, like the election year. So I look at, uh, I break up the, the, um, the platforms to try to assess them, just to categorize them, just based on 16-year periods, right? So 1840, 1856, 1860 to 1876, and 1880 to 1896. And these aren't, you know, strict uh, differences. And, you know, there are continuities within some of these, um, but I just use that for ease of uh, just to break it up there to, you know, to the data. Um, to your point about um, where these... Um, uh, you know, the contact and the order of some of these things you could say that um, by and large, the parties discuss economic issues more frequently and to a higher degree than other these, these other domains. So salience refers to the emphasis, not, you know, so let's say um, how much, let's say, of a given platform a party focuses its language or policies on a specific uh, on issues within a specific domain. So, how much of the platform, let's say, is devoted to economic issues versus issues relating to black enslavement, and civil rights? And I just basically take a proportion. I I code the I take you know each I code the platform based on the largest block of text I can in relation to a specific issue. So let's say a platform, uh, let's say the Republican Party, again, let's take um, the tariff just for consistency for our conversation. Let's say, let's say the Republicans in California in whatever year, let's say, let's pick a, you know, 1888, for example. And, um, let's say they discuss the tariff and in their platform. And let's say, you know, they have an entire plank, not just one sentence. So let's say it's three or four sentences or five or six sentences, whatever that might be. Um, or let's say to just say, you know, it could also be we support a protective tariff, which could be a certain number of words. So I take that as a proportion of the overall coded portion of a platform. And so that could be 20%, 30% of the platform. And I specifically, I want to clarify that um, when I talk about coded portions of a platform, what I mean is that there's some rhetoric in the platform that I do not include, that I do not count. That could be anything related to, you know, uh, procedural, you know, grounds for the ne or next meeting or whatever that might be, or trying to pick officers in their party or further going forward. So when I talk about coded portion, I'm talking about substantive language, whether that be endorsement of a, of a previous platform or anything relating to their, um, anything related to specific policies. So out of a certain number of words, right, you know, let's say there are a thousand words and 20 of them relate to, um, you know, um, I would say, you know, there are a hundred words in a platform and 20 relate to 
um, uh, economics, that means 20% of the platform relates to economics, right? Um, if, if my, if my uh, math is correct. So anyway, but, um, so that's how I just get salience. And that enables me to say, okay, a party, the parties emphasize, uh, economics, you know, in a certain part in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, versus let's say black enslavement civil rights. So I'll just give me an example out of 475 platforms total, 393 of those platforms include references to economic issues in some capacity. Out of 323, let's say, which is the next highest, I'm sorry, out of 475, 323 of those platforms reference issues relating to statism in some capacity, right? So that's frequency, the number of platforms in which an issue is mentioned. 275 platforms mention culture um, and so forth. Only 100 platforms out of 475 mention labor issues and 251 mention um, black enslavement and civil rights. How that relates to salience, though, is, is, is the issue that on average, platforms devoted 34% of their platforms content to economic issues. That is by far the largest um, amount. So, so when I say that economics is more salient, that the parties chose to touch, to discuss that more frequently or more uh, with greater emphasis than other issues, that's what I'm referring to. So the percentage of the platform devoted to a certain issue. So as I said, on average, over 475 platforms, 34% of the platform language is devoted to economics. Now, statism, as I mentioned to you, is in, is, appears in 323 platforms or issues relating to that appear in 323 platforms. Its salience, its average salience, however, is only 14, is only 14.38, meaning that 14.4% of the platform content overall is devoted to issues relating to statism. Black enslavement and civil rights, while appearing less frequently in platforms compared to statism, culture, government, political institutions, though has a higher average salience than any of those. 14.7% of platform content is devoted to black enslavement and civil rights. Still, given that's 20 points lower than economics on the whole. So that's kind of what I mean when we're talking about salience, the weight given to certain issues, the emphasis, um, how much the proportion, how much of a platform is devoted to a certain issue. Position is, you know, basically does the party uh, favor, are they in favor of, of the issue? They oppose to the issue or to what extent they, uh, they mention it, but really don't adopt a position. So a party may just mention an issue in a, in a, in a, in a platform without really designating uh, where it falls on it, which is, which is kind of interesting. Um, so that is used to determine, you know, based on if there's the parties in favor of, let's say the protective tariff, I designate that. If it's opposed to it, I designate that. 
or you know, if they just list it as a number of issues without really adopting position as designated that way. So it's designed to capture, you know, when I talk about setting some position, I'm intending to, to um, uh, assess both how much a party talks about an issue in a given platform, as well as its position on that issue. So with polarization and partisanship, I'm trying to assess over time, and we can talk about, you know, some of the main findings, but over time, are the parties also, are, are they talking about the same issues? And if they are, you know, are they adopting similar positions or conflicting positions? Fantastic. So let's go into some of these findings then. Uh, tell us about what your three predictions were that you list throughout the book and what were the findings of those three predictions? Okay. So as you know, with any, with any analysis, it helps you help structure that analysis and findings if we have certain predictions uh, to which we can uh, refer uh, to uh, throughout. And, you know, based on the literature um, and based on pre, and uh, I came up with uh, three main predictions that I wanted to assess. The first is that the platforms um, in, in, in each of the platforms will be more similar in content over time. And this is designed to illustrate the nationalization of the party system. So as I mentioned earlier, with the discussion of the party period, um, through the development of the second party system from the, the Whigs and Republicans into the third with Repo uh, Democrats, I'm sorry, second with Whigs and Democrats, and then third with Republicans and Democrats. I'm looking to, over time, the organizations developed and uh, as the party system developed, it became more nationalized. And as far as structure and organization is concerned, where the national party is trying to exert more um, influence over state and local affiliates. So the platforms themselves and, um, should, uh, you know, reflect this in some capacity. I also, speaking about this, uh, this you know, the second prediction argues or, or says that national issues will be more prominent than state and local issues in these platforms, meaning that state parties in their uh, platforms will discuss an issue in national terms or, or that is of concern uh, to nation more generally than they will um, on issues that uh, speak to state and local concerns. So maybe electoral reform, you know, if they're talking about electoral reform or the need for it, they may speak about you know, where the Democrats argue is the fraud of 1876 with that election versus, let's say, you know, the anti-democratic party speaking about issues relating to gerrymandering or redistricting within their own state. Lastly, I argue or predict that platforms will exhibit greater polarization and partisanship on planks relating to economic issues and issues within the statism domain than those from the other five domains throughout this party period in question. And so economics, you know, speaks this idea that, and this has been borne out in previous work, that the parties did discuss economic issues more uh, frequently and in greater emphasis than they do other issues throughout the 19th century is because 
that economic issues are 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 easier or maybe preferable for some uh, party leaders to try and craft a broader electoral coalition than let's say issues that uh, speak to um, ethno-cultural or ethno-religious concerns that speak to one's identity, which are more divisive. And so electoral uh, economic issues might be more um, attractive for party leaders and easier to articulate stark differences. Um, similarly, statism speaks to this as well because of the ideological focus of states' rights versus the power of the national government. Um, so that's why I make those uh, those that, that, that prediction. And so overall, um, you know, the data bear uh, support uh, these predictions. Um, over time, the parties did become more similar in content. They uh, devoted roughly the same amount of platform space to each of the domains. And as I mentioned, economics and statism, these two domains, due to their comparatively high frequencies and saliences throughout the party period, they do um, depict this nationalization. And overall trends indicate that the parties get closer in the degree to which they mention these issues. Also, in looking at that, I try to assess how many issues or how many domains are, are uh, represented in the platforms. So I try to assess platform comprehensiveness by saying, okay, you know, issues from economics, issues from culture, issues from black enslavement, civil rights are present in, in a platform versus, let's say, a platform devoted only to economic issues, right? So if there are representatives from three domains versus one domain versus two, and obviously, as you know, there could be the most could be seven, right? Um, so I find that the national parties and their platforms usually presented uh, more comprehensive so 29% of their platforms contain um, at least uh, issues representing five of the seven domains. And among the states, South Carolina, New York, and Georgia adopted the highest percentage of single domain platforms. And um, amongst the parties themselves, they all had roughly the similar um, rates of comprehensiveness and what they did. Um, but over time, we do see an increasing number of platforms containing planks from five or more domains. This is particularly evident in the latter period, 1850 to 1896. The second domain, as I uh, sorry, the second prediction, as I mentioned before, that um, the issue, the platforms discussed issues. Um, in terms of national policy to a degraded, to, to a much greater degree than state policy is also supported. In 76, uh, out of 70, sorry, out of the total planks, 76% of those discuss policies in relation to national terms, whereas only 17% are devoted to state policy references. Among the domains themselves, Foreign policy and black enslavement civil rights are discussed in national terms, most often at 98 and 94 percent, respectively. 
Policies related to labor and government political institutions are discussed in regards to state concerns more often. And again, smaller to agree only 33 and 46% of these planks respectively. I also wanna mention that over time, platform platforms devoted language to endorsing previous national and state platforms. And this is also designed to look at the nationalization of the party system as well. So we see that and part intra-party coherence. And we see that the endorsements of the national platform as well as previous state platforms did appear more frequently over time. And lastly, and this is where we get into some of the more nuances of the, of the debate uh, of the data, is that prediction three, which focuses on polarization and partisanship, shows that the parties did did pretty much articulate competing positions on issues throughout most of the time period. And I'm talking about whether it be the Whigs and Democrats or the Republicans and Democrats. And they also, for the most part, adopted, uh, they framed these issues and articulated them similarly. So they exhibited partisanship. So the Democrats of in a given election of the, the state affiliates and national affiliates may endure, adopt planks expressing similar positions. At times, they would adopt the same exact plank too. Um, it's also depicting that. Um, obviously, there are um, nuances which we can discuss or differences here and there, which did speak to uh, intra-party uh, division or the ways in which the parties in conflict may have uh, not necessarily uh, expressed competing positions on the same issue in the same manner, but chose to talk about them differently. No, Adam, I thought that was a wonderfully succinct and cogent overview of your predictions and the results. Thank you. I'll ask a penultimate question before we end it here, because I think we've covered so much of this uh, wonderfully informative book, is what are some of the implications of this study towards both kind of the historical political science of 19th century, but you also say that there's implications for broader analysis of uh, party-making decision, party platforms, and democratic uh, uh, spaces, elections, yeah, and I think this also we could talk about with we I think what you mentioned earlier about um, where we could see some of this work going, right? What are the implications of some of these things and where it could keep going? So I, I think for me and in, in, in looking at this and why I, why I think it's interesting um, and hope your listeners do as well, um, but um, is the idea that um, when party leaders uh, try to reconcile competing um interests within their own coalition how do they frame these statements right um by what you know how do they present their positions not only to themselves as well as to the broader public um and I, essentially like why do they matter um as i mentioned in the 19th century uh the party was much more of a identifying a brand um uh was this allegiance uh, that that maybe it's coming back in some degree, but I don't think so. Not the same way um, into today. I mean, party people use vote, party ID as a calculation in a way, but I don't think it's the same thing that we saw in the 19th century. Um, so I, I think 
you know, in the 19th century, it was one way to communicate uh, where the party is, right? Um, the personality of the president, for example, it wasn't the, the, the politics weren't really candidate centered in the 19th century like they are today. Uh, presidents, you know, in, up until, you know, really until the later stages of the 19th century, really, they didn't campaign. It was considered to be unseemly to do so, um, to go around the country. Um, so you know, the party was the key, uh, the key, um, I know I keep saying that a lot, but the main focus for a lot of voters. So if you were a Democrat, a Whig, a Republican, you can kind of look to the platform if you wanted to, if, if, if the voter, if a voter was at, you know, you know, a lot of voters, I don't think really did that, but if they wanted to, they could do so. And it was a way to organize, I would argue, um, and as Reynolds argued, search for harmony within party uh, leaders and elites at the state level and at the national level to coalesce, coalesce around a message. Um, and so I, as I looked at, as we kind of talked about here, and, and I don't think I really was explicit about that earlier, I only looked at presidential elections. And so I was trying to look at how the national platform, you know, and uh, related to of each party related to each other in inter-party conflict, as well as with the party affiliates within each of their own parties on the state level and try to see what kind of story is being told there. Um, and so that's on the presidential level, right? Where politics tends to be a little bit more salient, um, uh, uh, higher stimulus, if you will. So, what I'd like to do, I think, going forward in this research is trying to look at the uh, midterm election years and see what kind of stories being told there. Do we see similar uh, patterns and trajectories? And do we see more focus on state local matters in these midterm elections? Obviously, there are no national platforms at that time. So platforms matter because they are a record, they are official record of the party in a given election. In the 19th century, there were a lot of partisan press uh, outlets, I would argue similar today, I think, with, the, with what we talk about with online media, and even some of our, uh, you know, uh, cable news in a, in, in a way. Um, but um, these partisan presses would, you know, help for, you know, present the, before the professionalization of the, of the press in the latter stage of the 19th century, they would really present, you know, there might be a Whig paper or Democratic paper, or eventually a Republican paper, and they would put, you know, they could print the platform or, or some of this matter. Um, and so today though, I think that, you know, parties, state parties still adopt their platforms. Uh, they go about it. And we know on the national level they do, although obviously in 2020, the Republican Party um, chose not to adopt a new platform. They had, they had appended a letter uh, to their platform saying, you know, that essentially the party of, of President Trump at that time. And um, they adopted the same platform. I don't even think they changed anything that related to like they didn't even update it, if I recall correctly, like any dates. or anything. Thank you, Adam, so much for talking about this wonderful book, uh, Partisanship and Polarization. Give us a sense of what future projects you have. I know you indicated you want to talk about midterms, but is there anything else that you're, you're currently doing or have planned related to platforms or just American politics and American political history more generally? Yeah, thanks, Jackson. I, uh, 
I um yes, I, I do want to. I've started collecting uh, the midterm platform, midterm election platforms, and I need to. You know, I, I think I really want to pursue that uh, more fully. I'm also going to look at um, another idea that's coming out is trying to assess the, as I mentioned about the comprehensiveness of the platforms, trying to, I want to try to assess the degree to which, like, if a, you know, if a party in a specific election year, let's say the Democrats in 1880, let's say the New York Democrats of 1880, and I don't remember this from the book, but just use an example, if they had a, a platform of, you know, a really a comprehensive platform in which, let's say, they have six, you know, issues from six domains present. Does the Republican Party of 1880 also have that? Or do they go, you know, really simple and just focus on one issue, right? So that might give me an indication of where a party is, you know, so I want to do an analysis of that, of how they assess the political structure in that way. Um, I'm also looking at other, you know, something that's related but not related, um, I have this edited volume coming out called The Gossip Politic, which I, I did with a co-author, a colleague of mine, Andrea McDonald. Um, uh, she looked at uh, celebrity. Uh, she's a communication scholar looking at celebrity. And we were looking at this, the, the, the connection between celebrity and politics. And it's an edited volume to which we contribute a chapter looking at how taking on uh, Fenno's uh, uh, homestyle argument, and this is also... Um, uh, taken up by other scholars who we, who we reference and cite about how do they present themselves uh, to the extent that they have a style on social media and which they connect with um, with uh, voters. So it's building on this connection between political elites and voters. Um, and I want to we want to build that out a little bit more. Um, now, obviously, I don't know what Twitter holds going forward, um, but at least Twitter <laughs> has, has yeah. a medium to assess it. So we'll see. So I think those are in the, the more, um, you know, in the immediate uh, projects I have, I'm thinking about. Well, Adam, those all sound really interesting, and I look forward to engaging with that and reading that hopefully in the future. Uh, I want to thank you again so much for joining me to talk about your new book, Partisanship and Polarization, American Party Platforms. 1840 to 1896, published by Lexington Books 2022. Again, Adam, thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in Political Science, a channel of the New Books Network. I've been your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and thank you so much for listening.